Think about a time when you lost something valuable to you. I can think of people who have lost Christmas presents, wedding rings, or birth certificates. And somehow we've all mysteriously lost socks in the dryer. Who knows where they go? I'm not sure. But our concern about what was lost depends on how much we value it. Socks, not really that big of a deal. But a wedding ring, that's a much bigger deal. How much more so with people? This is the classic text on lost things, and it includes the prodigal son here. And I think sometimes we can think of this parable like a personality test. You're reading and you're like, which son am I, you know? Um, But I want us to hear the many ways God speaks to us through this passage. At different moments, we're all of them. Sometimes we're we're the younger son, sometimes we're the older son, and I also think that in this passage we're called to imitate the father. And so that's what we're going to see today, that we're each person in this parable. So first we'll take a look at the younger son. We are the younger son. So it opens with saying, the tax collectors and sinners, they're all gathered, and they're listening to Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are grumbling. They're annoyed that Jesus is sitting with tax collectors and sinners. And so that's what prompts Jesus to give these three parables on the lost things. And so first we have the parable of the lost sheep, then we have the parable of the lost coin, and then finally we have the lost sons. And these verses, um, yeah, they're important for setting up the rest of the text. And so we'll just start with the sons today. So we see that it says, there was a man who had two sons, two sons. And we know the story that the younger one says to his father, father, give me my inheritance, effectively saying, you're dead to me. It's as if he had already died because the son was supposed to get the inheritance after the father died. And so this is a huge shameful insult to the father. And yet the father complies. He says, okay, and he gives him his inheritance. And quickly the son sets off for a distant country. And he runs as far away from his father as he possibly can. He wants to do whatever he wants with his possessions. And he doesn't want the father to be involved in any way. But we see that it just goes from one thing to another for the younger son. It goes from bad to worse, and it's mostly of the son's own doing. He, the text is accentuating here that he squandered his wealth. He was living wastefully, recklessly. He spent everything, it says. And then, to make matters worse, there's a famine. So he's on the brink of starvation. He's desperately needy. He's at the lowest of low points, and he thinks to himself, well, I need to get a job because I'm starving out here. And so he hires himself out to feed pigs. And this already comes across to us as pretty um, low of a job. But we know from Leviticus that actually pigs were considered unclean. So not only is this a low job in our eyes, but this would have been extremely dishonorable and shameful to the Jewish people. So this decision was not only foolish, it was shameful, deeply, deeply shameful. And so then, on top of this, he's the one feeding the pigs, but he's still hungry. Isn't that kind of ironic, honestly? The pigs are getting something that he's not getting in this passage. And so the text continues saying, when he came to his senses, when he came to himself, 
And he's sitting there thinking, my father's servants, they're doing better than me. They're well-fed, they're satisfied, they're making a living wage, and here I am, I'm chilling with the pigs, and things are not going that well. And so he starts thinking of what he's going to do. I'm going to go to my father, and we hear his kind of um, rehearsing of his speech that he gives. And he says, I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy to be associated with you, to have your name associated with my name any longer. So just treat me as one of your hired servants. And the son is basically saying, I'm just talking about survival here. I know what it's like to be close to death, and I'm desperately needy. We can keep our distance. We can keep this contractual. I'm simply asking for the bare minimum. Because based on what I've done, what disgrace I brought upon myself and you, I'm not worth anything more than that. I don't need things to go back to how they were. I don't need a relationship with you. I just want to stay alive. And so if you can accept that plea, maybe I'll be okay. And so after this section, we kind of expect how the story's going to go here. We see from the son's perspective how he thinks the father's going to respond, and we don't really know a whole lot about the father at this point. So we kind of assume maybe this is how the father's going to respond. And surely in that culture, it was probably common for the father to respond in that kind of way. You did this to me as my son, and so you're no longer allowed to be associated with me. That's just the way that it goes. He was disrespectful and disgraceful. And so we as the audience are thinking, yeah, maybe he's not worthy. And maybe he's not even allowed to be the servant after what disgrace he's brought upon his father. But the text says he arises and goes to his father. So then we find out. And it says his father saw him. He saw him. He saw all that he was amidst all that he had done. His father saw him. And it ramps it up even more, saying that his father had compassion on him. He ran to him, which we know was not okay in that culture in any way for him to run, bringing more shame upon himself. He throws his arms around his son. He falls on his neck, basically, the text says. And he hugs and embraces his son. And he ignores the son's words. The son's trying to get a speech out, and the father's like, uh-uh. Instead, he says, bring my son the best robe, the best robe. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. So in the son's place of deepest sin and shame, the father gave his absolute best to his son. And in our places of sin and shame, too, God always gives his absolute best. God abundantly takes care of us. And it says, my son, this my son was dead. This my son. And imagine hearing that as the son, hearing the father claim his son as his own, saying, my son. And it's not that the father didn't care about what he did, like Stephanie said, but it's not mentioned here anywhere in the text. What the father cares about is the son's well-being. 
His focus is entirely on the good of the son from beginning to end. There's no mention of the father's own dignity here in this passage. The father welcomes the son home as if nothing ever happened. But the fact that something did happen made it possible for the son to see the kind of love and joy the father had for him the whole entire time. The compassion of the father was so much more than the son ever expected, and it was in the son's place of deepest rebellion and shame that he got to experience it. This parallels with Jesus and the tax collectors as well, because in the beginning we saw that the sinners were gathering near to him. The sinners, the most shamed in society, were coming near to Jesus. They were comfortable around Jesus. And that's pretty shocking, honestly, that somebody so holy would be somebody that sinners and tax collectors are so comfortable to be around. And coming near, it's impossible without shame, or it's impossible with shame. Without shame, it's possible to come near. And so shame tells us to hide, to flee, to not come near God or anybody else. And so we see that Jesus dispels the shame in the tax collectors and sinners' lives, and the father dispels the shame in the younger brother's life. He knows who they are, and he welcomes them to his table. And so in our sin, too, God is not the one speaking shame over us. He is not the one speaking shame over us. In fact, God's response to our sin does the exact opposite. The actions of Jesus reversed and re-narrated the stories that the son was telling about himself, the stories that the sinners were telling about themselves. Jesus interrupts our stories of shame and turns them into stories of compassion. So that's the first son, but there's still another son. And we can relate to that son as well. So second, we'll see that we are the older son. Up until this point, we haven't heard anything about the older son. We're not sure what he's doing. He was mentioned in the beginning, but we don't really know what he's like or what he's been up to this whole time. So Jesus now fills everybody in. And it says his older son in some translations. So we see that this is possessive, that the father has two sons. And this is primarily about the father and his relationship with those two sons. And so it starts off, his older son was in the field. And isn't that interesting? His older son is out working in the field Like the younger son, he's not in the house either. He's not in the house with the father. He's just close enough. He never really left the father, but he's been working as a hired servant or a slave, a distance away from his father's house. So much so that it says when he came near to the house, he was far and then he came near and he heard music and dancing. And so he's kind of wondering what's going on. And so what does he do? He doesn't go directly to the father. He asks another servant about what's going on. And the servant responds, your brother, he's back safely. I'd imagine there's some joy in the servant's voice. Like, aren't you concerned about what happened to your brother? Isn't that something that happens with siblings that you kind of care about what's going on in their lives? 
(laughs) But that's not how it went. It says, but the older son was angry and refused to go in. The response of the father has hit a place so deep in him that he will not go to this party. He's unwilling. And yet, in the compassion and grace of the father, when the son is unwilling to go out, to go in, the father comes to him. He comes to him. And the father pleaded with the older son. He wanted him at that party. He's imploring him, please come into this party. I want to celebrate. I want to share my joy with you. But the son replies, look, I have served, I've been a slave for you so many years. You can hear the heartbreak and exhaustion and anger in the son's voice, counting up the years he's worked for his own father, day after day after day, and he's hit his breaking point. It wouldn't make sense to say, I've been your son for so many years. He sees himself as a worker in relation to his father. He's focused on the labor that he's done for him. I've served you. I've been a slave for you. Never did I disobey your commands, but you never gave me anything. And it's the older son who brings up the sin of the younger son. He's like, he was the one that went out. He had prostitutes. He's the one that brings it up. The father never does. And he distances himself from his brother. He doesn't say, my brother. He says, that son of yours. That son of yours. He doesn't say, my brother. He picks a fight with his own father and hurls insults at him. And yet, what does the father do? The father still shows compassion. The father still responds calmly to all of the emotions of the son. He doesn't use the identity that the older son gave himself. He doesn't say slave. What does he say? He says, child. He says, my son. Just like he called the younger son, so he calls the older son. Both of them, my son. He says, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. You have already had access to all of this joy, all of this celebration. Everything I've had, it's always been yours, and it will always be yours. He says, it is necessary. This is what the Father says. It is necessary that we celebrate and be glad. The Father is saying to the older son, you're missing the bigger picture here. He's not my son He's not just my son. He's your brother. And your brother, he was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. This is worth celebrating. In both cases, the father was not as concerned about what the sons did as long as he had them. As long as he had them as people, as his sons. So God is not as concerned about what you or I have done as long as he has us, as long as he has you, as long as he has me. God doesn't need workers. He wants children. 
And the father doesn't play favorites either, but he has the same compassion for both sons. And this is what Jesus was telling the Pharisees. I love you as my child, and it's time for you to celebrate the joy of your brothers and sisters' repentance. There's joy in heaven when we return to God. And we can enter that joy with others because we've received that same joy ourselves. But what else does this mean for us? Perhaps you felt the burden of approaching God like a worker rather than a child. And you're exhausted. And just because you're exhausted doesn't mean that you've been approaching him like a worker. There's all kinds of reasons for that. But it's easy for us to go through the motions of just doing a lot of things for God and forget that he just wants us. That's all he wants. Our desires, our fears, hopes and dreams, thoughts and feelings, even sins and struggles, God wants us. And he invites you and me to rest in his love for us that doesn't change based on what we do or based on what we don't do. Perhaps we also just need to hear that it's the heart of the Father to come to us in our anger. He comes to us in our anger. We might think God is frustrated or annoyed at our anger, that he's just kind of tapping his foot, waiting for us to get over it, and then he'll come and hang out with us. But his response to the older son shows that he actually gently draws near to us in our anger. He's not afraid of it. This parable also shows how unworthy we feel, how worthy or unworthy we feel, is not an indicator of whether we're a child of God. It's not an indicator of our sonship. It wasn't the younger son's unworthiness that kept him out, and it wasn't the older son's worthiness that kept him in. It was the fact that they both belonged to the father, and that is what gave them their true worth. But we not only relate to the two sons, we also see that we are called to imitate the father. So let's see what that looks like. Jesus, most of all, embodies the heart of the father toward us so we can embody his heart toward others. The father wasn't concerned for his own dignity when he ran to the younger son, and Jesus wasn't concerned for his own dignity when he died on the cross. Like I said at the beginning, our concern about what was lost depends on how much we value it. And God deeply values us. He is more than willing to embrace social shame in order to bring us back to him. And then he has a feast. Many say that the fattened cast symbolizes Jesus' death. So this isn't just any party. This is the best party there ever was. And this passage is a symbol of that party. God welcomes us fully to the table, and it's not just a one-time thing either. God does this every time, in moments big and small, from the moment of our first time that we ever repented to all the times after that. This is how God approaches us in our moments where we turn back to him. And he even welcomes the most broken parts of us to the table. It's not just the prettier aspects of us, the kind that we are okay with people seeing, but it's even the aspects of us that we don't want anyone to see. 
Those are the parts he welcomes. This is what Jesus did with tax collectors and sinners. It's what he did with the Pharisees, and it's also what he does with us. So this is how we're called to be with others, imitating the heart of the Father towards them. We welcome others back into the family when they've strayed. We welcome them regardless of what they have done. We don't hold their sin against them. We remember their identity as a brother or sister. Through our lives, we show that the compassion of God is more than we ever hoped it could be. And I think that's so fitting why we're going to take the Eucharist after this. Eucharist means thanksgiving. It's a symbol of joy. And we're welcome to the feast of Christ's body and blood given for us. And we celebrate together each time one of us comes back to him.